Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a successful business, I've met directly or indirectly many successful people from entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes someone successful? Do we even know what success is? And the all important question, can we create it for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Hello and welcome to today's Sandro Forte podcast. Woo! Uh, with, <laughs> you're about to find out who that is. Um, so it gives me great pleasure today to introduce Michael Finnegan. Michael is the founder of a performance psychology business, pretty much the first on the ground to work with businesses in 1992 when nobody had really heard of performance psychology. Uh, the strongest championship winning CV of all time in sport. Really looking forward to hearing about that. He's worked in 27 countries. And I think it would be fair to say that Michael knows what it takes to be a successful person, both in sport and in business. So welcome to a very, very old pal of mine. Not so old, but uh, we've, been, we've known each other a long time. So fabulous guest today. Really excited about this. Michael Finnegan, welcome. Thank you, mate. I'm really looking forward to it as well, sharing a few secrets about maybe sport and business and life, right? Not just those two things, but everything. Absolutely. Um, so first question. Uh, so you've worked with a number of very, very well-known people. So probably most relevant at the moment is Tommy Fleetwood, but you've worked, I think originally, am I right in saying that you worked with uh, Jimmy White and then yeah. Darren Clark? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, long time, 1998. So you're going back 20 years there. Long time ago. Yeah, they started it all. So Andrew Flintoff. So give us a bit of background on you and how you started the business and in particular how you started working with these people. Okay, and it's an interesting story really, Sandro, because I started off my career age 16, wanting to be a footballer, got signed by Blackburn Rovers. I'm not going to say, well, I am going to say fail because I did, but I walked away. I wasn't asked to leave ever, right? So I was playing for the reserves when I was 16, which is quite a reasonable achievement. Mm -hmm. And you'd think that somebody who was doing that would be hugely confident. The reality was I wasn't. And it was an environment there. There's a real business clue here, by the way. It was a terrible, toxic environment around football, I think. that, And, you know, we've all seen these legal cases. We know what kind of thing we're talking about. But a very negative environment where they would happily reinforce you for the things you did wrong and not spend any time telling you how brilliant you were. And, and I, therefore, forgot how brilliant I was. And at the end of the season, 1977, I left. I wasn't asked to leave. I could have gone back and carried on. But I was 16, 17, and I just walked away. And I then ended up in a career via A-levels in banking, which I loved. And if I think about it, I was pretty good. I'm going to say a B-plus. And I loved it, and I enjoyed the variety it gave me. And I did that for 14 years. And I got, I got one step from the board in the end at Sock Gen in the UK mm. when I was 29, 30 years old. So I was pretty good at it, wasn't I? And I was doing pretty well. But, you know, inside, I had two kids by then. And you're not telling your kids to be B-plus, are you? No, that's right. You're telling them to be A-star, right? And I was saying to my missus, look, I've got no integrity here because... I'm telling them to be A-star and follow their dream and find something that lights them up, you know, then they'll never work a day in their life. And I'm a B-plus. So there's no integrity there. And by coincidence, I went on a training course about psychometric profiling for use in Sock Gen in a business we were doing, a business idea we had. And I was going to recruit 150 people for this new business for a, a client. And the guy taking it was, that his background was in, in the insurance business with Aon, uh, Pat Ryan Aon Insurance Group from Chicago. 
And he was lucky. He was 63, I was 32. And he was looking for a young apprentice. And his boss was 90. And his boss was, the I'm going to say, the great, because he is the great, W. Clement Stone. You know, the author of Think and... You know, if you think about Napoleon Hill and Think and Grow Rich, Stone was Napoleon Hill's mentor. I mean, he's just an absolute giant in the industry and the founder of Aeon. Anyway... At the end of this five-day course, this guy from Chicago, 63, says to me, I want you to pack in doing what you're doing. I want you to come and work with us. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, and he said, yeah, forget all the banking stuff. Come and work with us and help us in this little project that we've got going about unleashing potential in people. And I just remember shaking this guy's hand and saying, you are on. And I remember going home to Cheryl and saying, I'm going to be world-class at this. Not, I'm not the end of B+. I'm going to be A star. And she was saying, you've never done it before. You've got no training. You're 32 years old. You've got a mortgage. You've got two kids. I don't care about any of that. I am going to be the best in the world. And I guess in the moment that he asked me, I had a feeling of certainty. I just knew. And I think we've all been there, whether it's in a relationship or an idea of some kind. I knew it was going to be great. And I started a quest. And here we are 26 years later. And I think I am the best in the world at it, at what I do. I, seem, I simply do. I know I am in sport. Uh, but I think I'm pretty good at the business stuff and the life stuff. And we're coaching young people. We're coaching homeless people. We're coaching people in prisons. We're coaching people in all walks. We've, we've just done everything. And 90% of our time in business is helping them realize how to turn what people often call impossible goals into inevitable dreams. Just make them happen. Have that audacity and that self-belief to make it happen. Now, everybody knows you need that. The key question is, and everybody wants it, how do you get it? And when you've got it, how do you keep it? So that's what we spend all our life doing now. It's a complete accident. I set off to be a footballer, then ended up being a banker, and here I am in, in the psychology of excellence coaching, which at the time, in 1992, there was nobody else doing. Wow, that's quite a story. So <laughs> how did you come to meet Jimmy White? Because, look, let's be honest, at the time, he wasn't a bad player, was he? So he how, was, how do you turn a, a good player into a, into a world-class yeah, player? Yeah, and, I, and, and he, I mean, two questions there. How I met Jimmy was, I was... I was when I was learning this stuff from these Aeon guys, you know, 65,000 people in Aeon, and they're saying to me, this is a psychological blueprint we used to build Aeon. Go and take it worldwide. I, um, I was sharing it with my mates when I came back and said, look at this, look what I'm learning. And I had mates who were accountants and doctors and lawyers and all sorts of professional people in my network. That's what they were, young men who were doing things like that. And they were saying to me, Mike, we don't get any of this at law school. We don't get any of this in our educational development. Everybody needs it. And my mate, who was a lawyer, went home from one of these Sunday meetings, read his Sunday Times, and in it there was an article about Jimmy White, February 1998, saying he's alcoholic, he's using Class A drugs, he's got testicular cancer, he's taking Prozac for depression, he's bankrupt, his wife's left him, he's world number 39 or whatever at the age of 40, so his life's over. And, uh, and my mate was so revved up by what we talked about. He wrote him a letter. Dear Jimmy, I love you. My mate Finnegan's a genius. He will save your life. This is his phone number. Call him. Posted it at like 10 o'clock Sunday night. Phoned me on Monday morning saying, I've done something really stupid. I need to tell you about. I've written to Jimmy White because I was so moved by our day yesterday. And I said, thanks, Andrew. He'll probably never phone me. But what a lovely thing for you to do that you thought so much of me that you would do it. And on Tuesday night at half past seven, Jimmy White phoned me at home. And I always remember taking this call because I said to him, look, I'm a bit busy at the moment. Can I call you back? Because I thought it was the radio station winding me up or something. I thought my mate had phoned the radio. I was part of a big setup, you know, who would phone me kind of thing. Jimmy White phoning me. And he gave me his phone number. Whatever the code was at the start, the end was 147. Wow. 
And I thought, it's him. <laughs> it's got to be, hasn't it? I said, go on, I'll speak to you now quickly. What do you want? He said, your mate's written to me. He says, you'll save me life. Come and Can you come and meet me tomorrow? And I was, he was in Isha. He said, come and meet me in a coffee shop in Isha. And when I was working for Sock Gen, I knew I'd worked in Isha. They, they had an office there. And uh, I knew this coffee shop. 200 miles from home, I knew this coffee shop. And I drove down to meet him. And he said, right. Uh, after two hours, he said, let's do it. So that's how I got to know him. And what was interesting about the second part of your question was what, it, what was it about him? And it's really interesting this. He called me in because he's losing snooker matches. He's losing grip on snooker and snooker's everything to him and it's creating his financial wealth and everything. And he's losing it. He's gone down to world number 50. And he's, you know, he's 30 odd years old, he's 38 and 39 years old. So he's at the end of his career as a snooker player. And he's been a world number two and been in six world championship finals. And what was interesting, although the temptation is to start talking snooker, 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 what I realised very early on with him was that whenever he talked snooker, he lit up. And it was obvious to me that, that failing at snooker was a symptom of something else. And actually, whenever he talked about his drug addiction and his alcoholism and, and the cancer and the depression, it was that. It was that that was stopping him. And I said to him, Jimmy, you, we're not going to talk about snooker at all. I don't know anything about snooker anyway. We're going to talk about being a dad and a husband and looking after your health and your finances and making sure everything else is in place so that when you're on the snooker table, you've got no baggage. You can just play snooker. And who's going to beat you when you can just do that? So that's what we did. So the key was actually to understand it was nothing to do with the symptom. It was about his life approach. And, and I've taken that forward really. And so often now I find that whatever the, the symptom is, the, the solution's somewhere else. So it's about looking after the whole person. And then the A-star player will just come out. And that's what I did within, within probably three months of those conversations that we had. He was world number five and he was nearly 40 years old, world number five. It just doesn't happen. And he wrote in his book, uh, if you ever read his book, Behind the White Ball, which is, he's got two autobiographies and I'm in both of them. But in the first one, uh, he actually says, I've got my life back. It's life that you had to change. And I find that so often, you know, we work in these big, big companies like Rolls-Royce and British Aerospace and places like that. And you hear so often people retire, don't they? And then within a year, they're dead. And it's because they've only put all the focus on one thing. The self-esteem comes from work and they haven't put any effort into life. And I think young people today are hopefully getting a better sense that a balance in life is, is equally important. And it releases you then. All this sense of well-being that we're talking about now in organisations, that's important because it makes the employee healthier and better and more robust and resilient and confident and happy. So thank goodness the world seems to be catching up. It's taken it 26 years in my experience to get there. Mm. And that was the key, sorry, to you, your answer to Jimmy, mm. was life, not snooker. Wow. So one of my questions today, Michael, was going to be, uh, and, and we started to touch on this already, is, do you find that there's a common problem that exists amongst people who don't fulfil their pot potential or are struggling to find their way? Is it, is yeah. it just about mindset? Are people, yeah. are people born with talent or do, do, does that develop? Yeah, they're, not, they're born with talent, but you know, talent unrealised is, is almost a by, byword, isn't it? It's a phrase. We know we all know talented people who didn't realise that potential. So I think there is a common thread that you, that you look for. I was working the other day with Tata Steele, in South Wales, we've got 7,000 people down there in a big plant, and we've got to change it for the future of Wales, really, as much as anything else. And we're working down there. One of these delegates in the audience, participants, was a former under-18s world powerlifting champion. And here he is, 40 years later, a manager at Tata Steel. And I picked him out during the day. I said, hey, how much of powerlifting is in the mind? And he said, all of it. 
All of it is in them. And, you know, normally, if you ask Tommy Fleetwood or Darren Clark or Andrew Flintoff, they'll say 80%, 90%. So it's always a high answer. It's yeah. always a high percentile answer. But this guy said all of it's all in the mind. I've stood there on a podium with people who are bigger, fitter, stronger, you know, younger. All irrelevant. All irrelevant. Darren Clark won the Open Championship in 2011, I think it was. He was 42 years old and he was world number 150. Irrelevant. Totally irrelevant. All that's relevant is what do I want? Where am I now? Not how much talent I've got or how much, exp- none of that. What do I want and what am I prepared to do to get it? And do I believe if I apply myself, I can make it happen? And that's what, you've, that's what I've then got to get them to that place because where I find them is self-doubt, self-criticism, lots of people saying it's too late, you're not quite good enough, you didn't make it. A lot of people on their side saying, you've done really well, why don't you settle for where you are, you've nothing to be ashamed of, you've given everything. So they don't help in a way. Um, So they're surrounded by all that, and I've got to get them to block all that out and 100% believe they can do it. And when you get a person to that place, really, really hard to stop them. Mm. No matter what else is going on around them, no matter else, collateral damage or whatever circumstances, they will count for nothing. 85% of the homeless people we work with, 85% of homeless people, and these people have been homeless sometimes for 40 years, right? 85% of them have a job and a home within three months of working with us. Three months, 85%. And that's like, and, and they're, they walk into a room, Sandro, and everything they own in the world is with them in the room. They're wearing it. That's it. They have nothing else. Three months later, sort their lives out. How awesome is that? Now, that's mindset. It's nothing else. It's not like feeling sorry for yourself. It's not everybody else giving you handouts. You don't need handouts. You need a mindset. You've got a mindset and a healthy body, reasonably healthy body, you can do anything. Mm. Nothing will stand in your way. So it's getting them to that point, really. That's what we focus on. And we spent 26 years, and then W. Clement Stone spent 70 years before that, working out what is it? What does it take? How do you do it? <clears throat> and we then kind of spend three, four, five days working with people to get them there. And in that time, you can take them to places they'd never dreamed they'd ever get to. And that's in 27 countries around the world. People say to me, people are different. Do you know what? They're not. They're not. I've done it with Chinese people. I've done it with South American people, Australians, Africans, the Indian cricket. I'm flying out to see the Indian cricket team thinking, what the hell am I going to talk to these guys about? They were just the same. I might as well have been working in Berry. There was no difference. I don't have to change it. I don't have to change the material. I don't have to do anything. Because people are the same. I, I believe people are the same. We're waking up saying, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. What if I've lost it? What if I've missed the boat? That happens all over the world every day, and my job is to help them mm. take that away. That's all we're doing. So I think it's all mindset, and it's all doable, and there are no barriers, none at all, to getting where you want to go to. Wow, fantastic. So uh, we're talking about individuals. Um, so you work with people, you help to change their mindset, and mm. the results speak for themselves, obviously. Just talk to us a little bit about teams, because you know we all work in teams, or many of us do, whether it be in a corporate environment or whether in a sporting environment. <coughs> So how do you work with a team, Michael, when, for example, everyone has you know, a different mindset, they come from a different place, they've all got different objectives. Is that, is that more of a challenge or do the same principles apply? I think it is probably more of a challenge because you're not just talking about the individual now. So where we start from there is it starts with me first, right? If we're a team of two, it starts with me looking after me and you looking after you. I always used to, I, used to, I still say it actually, customer comes third, right? Everybody thinks customer comes first. I don't believe that for a minute. I think the customer comes third because I think I come first. I've got to walk through my door every morning 
feeling a million dollars, right? That's what I've got to do. Now, that's my responsibility. No matter what's going on at home or the traffic or the weather or whatever, walk in feeling a million dollars because you can if you want to. So, so let's not have any excuses about that. Don't bring any excuses with you. Walk through the door feeling amazing. When you do that, Emil Kuwe in 1920 wrote a book called, I, and, and it, was, it was called Self Mastery Through Auto-Suggestion. And in it, he has this phrase, I'm okay, you're okay. When I get myself in that space, when I meet you, I automatically expect to find you, want to find you, want to help you get into that space too. So I'm automatically assuming you're okay. Now that helps because when you meet me, I'm sending out vibes now that I like me and I like you and I like us and we can just take the world on, right? So that raises your game. Now imagine you've been through the same program and you're getting yourself to walk in feeling amazing and you're walking towards me and you want me to be amazing. So so our, our relationship comes second. So it's me first, us second. And you know what? What chance has the customer got then? What chance has the opposition got then? Answer is none. They got no chance because us at our best is usually good enough. If we've got a decent product and a decent marketing plan and a decent strategic plan, which we'll have, right? Because we all have them then that X factor, that magic ingredient of us, trusting each other, loving each other, believing in each other, watching each other's backs, unstoppable. The customer will love it and he'll have no idea why. And I'll tell you what, it won't be because of the marketing plan or the product mix or the strategy. It'll be because of the magic that we exude as we go about our business. So, so, so we're looking individual team and then go to the customer. All the best projects we've ever, ever done, we've walked, we walked in with one, one organization, three and a half thousand people, 65 retail businesses, uh, failing really on the high street, and a lot of short-term temporary employees, you know, students going through university. And, the, and these bosses had come down from corporate head office in Leicester and said, you need to sort out our share price and your customer performance is garbage and you're down your P&L and all that. Imagine saying that to 19-year-old kids at university. And I went in and said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And this guy said, well, I'm, I'm at university studying to be an architect. I'm studying to be an accountant. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a nurse. And, and I said, right, well, when these people come into this business, the best jobs aren't in the paper or online. They're in the pocket of the guy you're about to serve dinner to. So if you serve him brilliantly, he'll say, I really like you. And you'll talk, you'll get in a conversation about being a dentist and he'll end up being a dentist and he'll give you his card and he'll say, when you want a job, when you finish your degree, give me a call. That's where all the best jobs are. So this kid said, how do we know which one's the dentist? Because <laughs> he only wanted to be nice to the dentist, right? At least I've got his, his, uh, his attention. And I said, well, that's the key in it. You don't. He said, so how do we do that then? And this other girl put her hand up. She said, he just wants us to be nice to everybody. Right. So this can gone. So if we're nice to everybody, eventually one of them will be a dentist and I'll end up with the job that I want. That's the game. Right. Got it. Customer service there went from 42% to 91% in a month. Same product, same customers, same staff, same everything. Staff turnover was still high because it was students, but the service levels never dropped because we had that mindset. And do you know what? It's not about the customer, customer service. It's not about the share price. It's about me deciding to do it. So when you get into that zone of people personally invested for their own pride or their own development and, and kind of t being tangential with the business goals and the personal goals, when you get that lined up, you're just laughing. You like the blue touch paper. And we went through that business. And that business in Glasgow was the worst performing customer service, mystery customer visit, visitor um, business and had been for ages. 
It got to 91% in a month. In, th- in The following month, it got to 92 Six months later, it had a 100% mystery visitor score. And in their 65 retail businesses, they've been measuring it for three years, and they never had 100%. Never had one 100%. So Glasgow became number one. And then, guess what happened then? Somebody else got 100%. Somebody else got 100%. Now we were going back to our regional meeting saying, Glasgow's got 100%. What, what are we doing? So then we all set a new target. And instead of the new target being to get to 92, the new target being to get to 100. Within two years, every single site, 60-odd sites, had had 100%. And they were getting 300% a month from it. Now, that was about a change in mindset. It's not about share price or customers or whatever, mm. P&Ls, right? It's about individuals taking pride for their own personal reasons to do what they're capable of doing and being refocused and re-inspired and reimagining the capability. And when you do that, oh my God, it's exciting. And it's like the blue touch paper because you can just take it to wherever you want then. I'm, I'm feeling a degree of passion in what you do. <laughs> I absolutely love it. No, you do. I love it. It. No, I it, love it. um, it's, it's obvious and that's why you're clearly very successful at what you do. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about younger people. So working with children must be really inspiring. Oh, it's beautiful, yeah. Is there, is there an age, would you say, because we've, we've heard about this before, but is there an age at which you think children stop being shaped? It, do you think it's a continuous process? Yeah. Can you change the mindset of anyone? Is there, a, is there an optimum age, would you say, that Blooming. you can help to shape someone and yeah. their future development? Good question. They always say, don't they, that your most important teacher in your child's education is the first year reception teacher, your teacher at four. So the ground that they establish then just takes you on through your education. So in schools, we're asking teachers to put their head teachers to put their best teacher often they put them last right they put them in year 10 or sorry year 7 isn't it when they go to big school don't put them there put them in reception because that first grounding is important mm. however never write them off right so so we get kids in year 6 year 7 they get 10 11 years old and they're just about getting to the point where they're starting to see I'm going to big school I'm a big fish in a small pond I'm going to be a small fish in a big pond I'm struggling with that a little bit. So the first crisis confidence often comes around 10 or 11. Now, they're probably a bit young for us then in terms of the depth of what we can teach them, but they're not too young in terms of that just general awareness. So beneath beneath the age of 11, we'd probably prefer to work with the parents and say, create an environment, and the teachers, create an environment that allows this person to grow and to respect herself for who she is and not to worry about all the things that she isn't. So that's really important then. I think once they get to big school, I'm going to call it. Mm. I don't know what it is called mm. now because I didn't go to school school, very much. Big school would do, won't it? But once you get there, 12, 13, 14, now I'm starting to say I'm a bit more adult. I'm looking at my options. I'm thinking about college and stuff like that. Now you're all right to work with us and we can have a very deep, intellectual, quite mature conversation. And what we find then is the progress from then, and I'm, I'm reluctant to say this really. I'd be careful saying this in front of students, but actually your progress in life isn't, about your academic grades at age 16, is it? And we don't want to say that because we know that education is important. People in prison largely have had a poor education. So we're not, we're not disrespecting that or writing that off. But what we're saying is if you, haven't, if, you, if you haven't got there yet, don't let it hold you back. Don't let it be an excuse. Don't let it worry you. So we are then saying we can still change these people. So again, we'll get 86, 87% of kids who come to us age 15, which is the prime intervention for us. They come to us age 15 and they come because the school has said, he's an absolute nightmare. He's going nowhere. He's, he's going to go on to the black economy. He's not getting a job. He's going on to the unemployment register. 
And those kids will come out a year later with seven GCSEs, including maths and English. Seven. And that's the average. That's the average is seven. So some might want to get five or six. Some will get eight, nine, ten. One of them studying to be a barrister in Leeds. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So, so we're able to... And we don't have them for five years, by the way. We have them for three days. But in that time, you're able to change it. So early on, it's about teachers and parents. And, and I would love to spend more time talking to parents of that age kids. But then beyond that... As the, as the young person starts to take responsibility for themselves, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, mm. then, it, then we can take over and we can do it directly with them. And again, I don't care where you are, I don't care how bad you've been, there is no correlation there that we should take as acceptable that means they cannot go on to be a fully functioning, performing member of society. Mm. None at all. Um, and that's what, that, so that's what we focus on. So yes, they're being shaped early on, but just don't write people off because they will always surprise you. And Jimmy White was... 40 years old when we st- when we started turning him around. Darren Clark was 42 when his penny dropped. So it might take a time, but yeah, we just get pretty much total success with people. Yeah, that's amazing. And total. Um it, Mike, is there is there um any first steps that people can take? You know, we, we all struggle, don't we, with self-belief? And of course we do. Li- life hasn't been plain sailing for you, has it? Not I mean, a, not at all. No. So tell us about if you had any challenges that you've you faced oh, and how do you fa- how do you face them? How do you deal with um, you know, is the, again, is this where mindset helps? Totally. Do you, do you revisit the basics? How, yeah. how do you go about dealing with life's challenges? Well, I mean, what what you what happens, right? When things get difficult, we, we in our good times we all set goals, right, for where we want to be. And when things get difficult, we lose, we give up on them. We, we we say, oh, that's not going to be possible now. And actually, the danger then is you start to set a different goal for mediocrity, and that then becomes a goal. So imagine that, failure then becomes the goal. And what I've learned through my 26 years of studying stuff is just don't let that happen. So you know what, yeah, the seas aren't always calm. Yeah, every day isn't easy, but those are your great days. Those are the days when you're learning. Those are the days when you're gonna find out how much you want something and find out how good you are. So take those days on the chin. So, so then don't let that bother you. Take it for going forward and use it as strength. And, and most importantly, keep your mind on the goal. No, nobody said it was going to be easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. So come on, grow up, right? Grow up, stand up and, and commit, recommit to what you want. Don't ever, ever, ever let it go. Now, what's lovely, not about Michael Finnegan, but about... The, the Darren Clarks and the Russell Crowes and all these famous people we might talk about, if you delve into their story, which is what you're doing on your podcast series, you'll find out it was hard for them too, right? And what we always think when we're looking at people is they had it easy. Mm. Well, listen to their story and you'll find out they had it so hard, you would probably have given up. And so that's why these this series is important because it enables people to tell their story to say, oh my God, I never would have been able to come back from that. And yet he did. So therefore, if he can, I can. And that's what we want to get into people's minds, that you've got to stay. Number one tip for me from this, stay focused on your goal at all costs, no matter what. And that for me is the probably the single biggest tip. So, And of course, people... At that uh, young, you know, young people haven't haven't spent time formulating a goal. Well, that's okay. They can, mm. and, it, and and the danger, I guess, is that like I, one of my first meetings with Darren Clark, tell me where you're going to be in 25 years, and he said to me, "I never think about that." So he was trying to tell me they didn't have a 25 year goal. So I said, I started writing notes. I said, "Where are you going to?" So you'll be 50. You'll be 55. Where will you be? He said, "I'll be living in Belfast." What kind of house will you be living in? And he, he started to, "What kind of car will you drive? Will you be thin or will you be fat?" 
we'd be healthy or unhealthy. You're still smoking. You're still drinking too much. And, he, and I wrote this long list. And I, and I wrote a 25-year goal for him. And I showed it to him. And I said, here's your 25-year goal. Living an average life as a forgotten golfer, uh, driving around in a BMW 5 Series, overweight, unhealthy, unhappy, married with two kids, still smoking, blah 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 He had a five-year... He filled the page of A4. I said to him, I thought you didn't have a 25-year goal. It's there. It's not a very good one, but it's there. Shall we change it? So I said, come on, if you could rewrite your destiny, what's going to be on there? And he said, I'm going to, I want to be Open Champion. Right. I want to be Ryder Cup Captain. Right, let's write that down. I want to drive a Ferrari. Right, come on. I want to live in a house in the country overlooking the sea. Right. Mm. So those were there too, but they were cosseted, closeted inside this you know, this negativity. Mm. So everybody sets goals. Everybody. Even the ones who don't think they do. Even 15-year-old kids on a council estate somewhere in the country, they're setting a goal and it's a bad one. It's a, it's a goal of unemployment, of mediocrity, you know, of difficult relationships, of an unfulfilling future. But that's still a goal, isn't it? So we've got to challenge that. And, say, and then what happens is when you set that goal, your behaviours line up with that goal. Mm. That's why you're not paying attention in school. That's why you're not passing exams. Because... Your subconscious mind is driving you towards a future that you've created unwittingly. So my job is to slap you around, wake you up, make you realise you're going on a negative path, and then say, why don't you change it? And everybody wants to change it. And then once we've got it, keep that in your mind. And if you have a few bumpy days, suck it up. <laughs> Get on with it. So what I'm hearing you saying is that, and I've heard this said many times before, but in my view, it's so true. People fail in life not because they aim too high and miss but because they aim too low and, and hit succeed, right succeed right leonardo da vinci said that 500 years ago didn't he that that is the tragedy of life and it's true isn't it yeah so when we, you know, when we take a classic group of school kids right when you when you get them they're 15 right and you'll go around the room and you'll say what do you want to be uh, and they'll say uh, they'll say army the lads will say army or they'll say mechanic and the girls will say beauty therapist right now they don't say that because that's what they dream of, because that's what they want. They say it because people have told them, that's all you're good for. That's all that's down for you. And they accept that as the truth because you're the expert, right? You're the teacher. You're the whoever, the, 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 the sociologist or whatever. So you're the expert and you're telling them that's what they do. So then we play them the Robbie Williams poem, which is on life through a lens. If you haven't heard it, you need to play it. Hello, sir, remember me? I'm the man you thought I'd never be. The boy who you reduced to tears. The lad called Thingy for six whole years. Yes, that's right. My name's Bob, the one who landed the pop star's job. The kid who you told, look, don't touch. The boy who wouldn't amount to much. Well, I'm here and you're still there with your fake sports car and receding hair. <laughs> married to the woman who teaches art. All, and, and he goes on about this wonderful poem. And, and we play them that. And he, and he finishes by saying, and here I sit in first class, swear, 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 kiss my ass, he says at the end of it. Yeah. And I'm saying, who feels like, and then we'll say, who feels like that? And these kids will say, me. So I'll say, so do you want to be in the army? And he said, well, no, not, not, not really. I, I'd, like to, I'd like to be a builder. Oh, whoa, hang on a minute. Five past nine, I'd like to be a builder now. Five minutes ago, I wanted to join the army. So you've got to raise their sights and get them to think differently. And once you, once you do that, once you get them to see a glimpse of it, they'll, they'll get there then. But you have, to, you have to get them to uncover it because they do aim too low and succeed. Mm. And they're surrounded by people who are saying, told you, I knew that would happen. But to, for them to dare, it, life isn't about fear of 
failure, is it? It's about fear of success often. Yeah. What if I can't match up to anybody's dreams? What if it's too hard? What if it's too difficult? Right, I'll tell you what, get there anyway. Michael, I think I'm right in saying Michael Jordan didn't want to be a basketball player, first off. He wanted to be a doctor, and he failed. And then he wanted to be a pilot, and he failed. So he ended up being a basketball player, which wasn't bad for his third choice, was it? So when you start dreaming of something big, you might not end up there, but I'll tell you what, you'll end somewhere, you'll end up somewhere amazing and somewhere brilliant, some, something that fulfills and enables you to demonstrate what your true talents are. I started off being a football, I wanted to be a footballer. I'm not a footballer, but I, when, I, when I got here, I got things that I think being a footballer would have given me. You know, the ability to change lives, the ability to influence, the ability to be a hero and to ride into places and inspire people. That's what I was centre forward, right? I wanted to run to the crowd. Even if there was only 20 people in the crowd, I'd run to the crowd and dive in to the crowd. Mm. And, you know, I just scored the winning goal. That was about lifting them and making their lives better. And that's what I'm doing now. So you've got to get people to dream big and risk failure. That's what you've got to do. You're spot on with what you said. Mm. Spot on. So, um <laughs> I would love this conversation to go on for hours and hours and, you, and we've already packed in, well, you've packed in to 30 short minutes, about two and a half hours worth of takeaways. So thank you. Thank you for that. I have to ask you one question because we ask all of our guess. Um, I, I know you don't know this, so this is bringing a surprise, but the surprise for you with the, the simple question is with all of the experience that you've got, knowing all the things that you know now, yeah. what advice would you give to a 15-year-old version of yourself? Right. Sat on your knee, looking yeah. to dad for some advice. What would you be saying to well, yourself? I've just taken, daughter, listen, I've got four daughters, right? And you know what it's like when you get all these kids. You can't remember their names, <laughs> can you? You shout at one, you use the wrong name, they all get mad. So I just give them numbers. Number one, number two, number three, number four. Number four has just gone to university in London. And when I dropped her off last week, I said, darling, dream big, work hard, have fun. Right, those are my three things that I wanted to do. Dream big is the most important one of all, isn't it? Who says? I did a speech last night at my little football club, Chorley Football Club's my football club, right? And we had the under 13s, under 15s, under 18s there, and the parents. And I said, in 1978, when I went to Wembley, England beat Argentina 3 1. And Argentina were world champions. And it was the first time we'd seen this kid called Diego Maradona. He was a genius, but we beat him 3 1. One of the goals was scored by a lad whose first senior debut was for Chorley Football Club. So I said to these young people, this football club has spawned a man who played centre-forward for England against Argentina, the world champion, scored a goal at Wembley in a 3-1 win. He's the first of our players to play for England. Who's going to be the second, right? Why can we not have another one? So, so when, you know, when we're talking to people all the time, we're getting them to dream that dream. Why can my daughter not be on the stage in Broadway? Why not? Why can't she? Why can't she do that? There's no reason, right? But you've got to work hard. And you've got to take the bad days and see them as good days. So keep your attitude positive and work hard every day, even when you don't get the immediate payback. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy every step. Have fun along the way. And you will get somewhere absolutely incredible. Dream big. Work hard. Have fun. Get on with it. Well, let me use a word you've just touched on. Incredible. And... Uh your participation and the things you've shared with us today have been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you. Time is against us. I'm, we're going to be inundated with requests to hear more from you, I'm absolutely sure. So hopefully <laughs> we'll come back and do some more with us. Anything for you, Sandro. This is Anything for you. Scratching the surface. Anything for you. So that was the Sandro Forte podcast. And our guest today was the fabulous Michael Finnegan. Thanks again to him for so much great takeaway there's lots more interviews to come over the coming weeks and months, so don't forget to follow us on social media, Sandro's Podcast, that's the same on all channels. 
Don't forget to share your stories, thoughts, experiences, and email me, hello at sandrospodcast.com. Finally, of course, please leave your reviews on the podcast with iTunes and tell us what you'd like to hear more of in the future. Until next time, thank you very much. Thank you.